All right. Uh, would you please turn into your Bibles to the, the book of Luke in the New Testament? And if you don't have a Bible, we provide Bibles on your tables. That's what these sweet things are right here. Isn't that amazing? And if you want to take one home, you can. It's free. You can steal it. What is going on at the food table? There must be something really good over there, huh? All right, Patrick, are we good on the mic? Am I talking too loud? I hear it humming. Is it me or is it you? It's me? Uh, I'm sorry. Okay, hello, hello, hello. Oh, what a great way to start Sunday school. <laughs> yeah. All right, Luke 15, let's just get into it. Um, this is the story of the lost son, the prodigal son. Are you there? Luke 15, beginning in uh, verse 11. We're going to read through uh, verse 24. It's the story of the prodigal son, the parable that Jesus tells um, about a son that is lost. That's what prodigal means. Did you know that? Lost son, prodigal son. And it says this. Read along with me um, silently, not out loud, of course. <laughs> Verse 11. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Okay, so you know what's going on right there. The son is asking his father for his inheritance. Is the father dead? No. In this culture, you received your inheritance when your, when your father passed away. And so what the son's basically saying is, Hey, Dad, slap you in the face. Can I have my money of my inheritance, considering him dead? That's kind of, if, if you didn't know that, that's part of the story. And it's something that people in this time would have understood clearly. It's a big slap on the face. Okay, verse 13. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a different country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out as a citizen of that country he, he, who sent him to the fields to feed with the pigs. Kind of gross, huh? Yeah. Verse 16. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Really gross. Verse 17 says, When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still along the way, uh, a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. Uh, the, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against you and against heaven. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe for him and put it on him. Put a finger on his ring and sandals on his feet. What did I say? Dang it. This is a serious part of the story. It is kind of funny. I mean, in our culture, like you see someone, I mean, he's obviously without sandals, without a ring. (laughs) Bring a fattened calf and kill it. Let's feast and celebrate, for the son of mine was dead, and now he's alive. He was lost, and now he's found. So they began to celebrate. Isn't that sweet? That's so, that's so amazing. Yes, it is. Let's pray. 
God, would you help my speaking this morning? Jesus, we invite you here to do what you will in our hearts. God, open our minds. Open our hearts to your wisdom. God, as we're talking uh, about the civil war this morning and, and reconciliation, God, would you just impart to us your wisdom, what you want to share to us through church history, just your history. Uh, as, as we live on this earth, we can look back and say, God, you were working in other times. In the, in the history of the United States, we can see your hand moving, and we just praise you for that. And everybody said, amen. All right, everybody. The Mill Sunday School, we used to come in here and just fool around. You realize that, right? There's no more fooling around. Did you know that we do the Sunday School podcast? Yes, it just went up last Friday. There is a Sunday School podcast. There's two ways of getting to the Sunday School podcast, or any podcast, um, by the way. You have to have something called iTunes. If you haven't heard of iTunes, I was going to say something bad. Um, you need to get iTunes. You need to have a computer, sorry. Then you need to have iTunes. And then you either go to the Mill website, look at podcasts, and then go to the Sunday School podcast, and it'll bring you to it on your iTunes. Or in the iTunes program, you could search for Sunday School podcasts. And ladies and gentlemen, Sunday School podcasts are up. All of last month's teachings about wisdom of the ages is up. I know, I know. We are no longer fooling around in here. Okay, this is the last Sunday of uh, church history. And every month, there's a new topic. And so next month is going to be ethics. Everybody say ethics. It's going to be a good month. It's going to be a challenging month for some of us. It's going to be a month where we look at a lot of hot topics. And so don't miss any Sundays next month. And everybody, we are meeting on Easter Sunday. In the past, we, we haven't met on Easter Sunday, but there's always so many people that come and say, I showed up. Where, where, where was Sunday school? And so we are, we're, we're meeting every single Sunday this entire year, I think. I know. That's pretty sweet. It's awesome. I know. And so uh, ethics is next month. Let's do a quick recap of where we've been in American church history really quick, shall we? Yes, we shall. Look at your notes. The notes are called a skillet. And if you're taking notes, you really should take notes because you realize that Sunday school, this isn't a sermon. Am I preaching to you? Not really. This is more of a teaching. That's why there's a whiteboard and I get to draw on stuff and I show you video clips. And so you want to take notes. You want to remember this kind of stuff. It's the kind of stuff that's detail stuff. that You learn the big picture through the details and you learn the details, at least me, by writing stuff down. And so write stuff down. It's so cool. Um, American church history. If I was to give you three points of American church history leading up to the Civil War, and this is all of American church history, where would I have to begin? I would have to begin with the beginning of America. Christopher Columbus, right? In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. So if you're writing down dates, that's the most important date. Uh, 1620, what happened in 1620? Pretty big deal for American history. Yeah, the Plymouth Rock Settlement, the Pilgrims and the Indians and the Thanksgiving dinner and all that sweet stuff. Um, 1620, that's when it happened. Um, the next date that I want to give you, because I know you love dates, don't you? <laughs> yeah. 1775 through 1783, what war was that? Yeah, the American Revolutionary War. This is big picture stuff. This is stuff that you should know from like 
third, fourth grade, right? Right. I mean, maybe not. Maybe you, I mean, maybe you're not into dates as much as I am. I really love the dates, and so uh, I'm giving the, you them. And then the the American Civil War. What year was the American Civil War started? Does anybody know? I hear it out there. It's 1861 through 1865. That is when the Civil War started. And so that's what we're talking about. We've been talking about it all this month. Do you remember Abraham Lincoln? Were you in here the other week when we talked about Abraham? Were you in here the other week when we debated slavery? Yes, of course you were. You love that stuff. Um, okay, so let's, let's talk about the American Civil War. Is everybody okay? Breathe in. Breathe out. Imagine this. We, uh, we talk about the American Civil War like the North wanted to free the slaves and the bad, bad guys in the South wanted to keep all their slaves. And that's sometimes how we think about the Civil War, right? Yeah, you think about it like that. I know you do. And so what I want to say is that to think about it like the, the South thought about it, and it's kind of like one country, one area just wanted to leave the others and be their own separate thing. They believed that they had the right to do that. I remember when I was leading a small group a long time ago, and I love small groups. Does anybody else love small groups? Has anybody else ever led a small group? Raise your hand. Isn't it so sweet? Isn't it fun to lead a small group? I, I, I love leading small groups, and this is kind of my small group, although it's not that small anymore. And um, I was leading this small group back in the day, and this girl started coming to the small group, and she had just left another church. She had left a church that... Uh, I'm not going to name it because not all of the churches are like this particular one. But it was very cultish. They did not want her to leave the church. She left. She started coming to our church and to, uh, and to, to the small group that I was leading. And this other church, uh, her previous church, kept on calling her saying, why did you leave? Um, you know you're going to hell if you leave our church and go to any other church. And they would actually show up at her house and talk to her and say, you're going to hell because you left the church. And, and just really guilt tripping her. Um, giving her a hard time. One time she came and she showed me some bruises on her hand where one of the other church leaders grabbed her hand and was squeezing her hand and talking to her really mean about leaving the church and going to this horrible um, small group and church that I was leading. I even got called by one of their church leaders saying, what are you doing stealing all our people? <laughs> and I, and, I, and I, didn't, I had never known the girl before she just started coming to our small group. And it was just really weird. And she wanted to leave this other group and come to our group. And so if you look at it like that, I mean, in the end, she had to get a restraining order against a couple of the people of the church leadership. Isn't that weird? That's weird. And so I remember talking to her and saying, if you want to leave this small group for any reason, because you've been so hurt by this other group, if you want to leave my small group, I'm going to give you my blessing. Powerful scene of reconciliation, I think, that, that shows that the Civil War was a war in which the North fought, fought the South, and people that knew each other sometimes had to fight against each other and kill each other. And so as we're talking about the end of the Civil War this morning and the, the reconciliation that had to happen for the North to be back with the South. And so that clip was just one example of that at the Battle of Gettysburg. But was Gettysburg the end of the war? No, it actually was not. Another two years of Civil War before it finally ended. One big thing that happened in a year later, after um, in 1864, is Sherman's march to the sea. Have you heard of that? Sherman, a, a northern general, led his armies through the south.
from, uh, from about Atlanta, Georgia, all the way to the ocean, um, burning about a 100-mile strip all the way to the sea to break the back of the south, burning, uh, killing cattle, killing, burning towns, killing sometimes innocent people. It was a pretty bloody situation, and they did it to break the back of the south so that the south would, would be to- totally annihilated. And sure enough, a year later, um, the Civil War ends. The Civil War ends with the dude in the south, the main general. Do you know his name? Yes, General Robert E. Lee, surrendering to the main dude, the main general of the north. Do you know who that is? You guys are so good. That's amazing. Ulysses S. Grant. Did you know that? Some of you are like, man, there's some smart people in here. I agree. There are some smart people in here. Here's the story. Um, Grant offers Lee some things, uh, offers to treat his men well. Grant is from the north. Lee is from the south. Grant says, I will um, give you, I will, I will be good to your men. I will give them fair treatment if you surrender to me. And Lee says no, and there's some more battles that are fought. But then um, in 1865, Lee sends a letter to Grant saying, yes, I will surrender. And so here's the story. It says, dressed in immaculate uniform, Lee waited for Grant to arrive. And the place was the Appomattox Courthouse, a pretty famous place in American church history. Um, American history, excuse me. Grant, whose headache had suddenly disappeared when he received Lee's note, arrived in a dirty private's uniform with only his shoulder straps showing his rank. Suddenly overcome with sadness, Grant found it hard to get to the point of the meeting. And instead, the two two generals briefly discussed a previous encounter of the Mexican-American War. It's hard to talk about. Lee is surrendering to Grant after years of battling. Um, Lee brought back to attention the issue at hand, and Grant offered the same generous terms as he had before. Those terms are, first, that the armies of the South had to, their arms, their artillery, the public property, had to be parked and stacked and turned in to the armies of the North. And this, uh, but this did not include the sidearms of the officers or their private horses or their baggage. Each officer and man will be allowed to return to their homes and not to be disturbed by the United States uh, government again, as long as they observe the paroles and the laws which are in force where they may reside. In addition to these general terms, Grant also um, allowed the defeated men to take home, home their horses and mules to carry out the spring planting. You, you realize that that's a little unusual for, for one army to surrender to the other and the, the winning army to just say, oh yeah, just go on your merry way. Here's all your stuff back. Usually there's prisoners of war. Usually they're you know, put in... And, you know, there's trials that have to take place. As Lee left the, uh, the courthouse, Grant's men began cheering in celebration, but Grant ordered it to meet, immediately stop. Do you see it? It's a, it's a war unlike any other war that, um, that the United States has obviously been a part of. It's just a, a war that needs a lot of reconciliation because it's a civil war. Let me read about General Robert E. Lee. Do you like him? I kind of like General Robert E. Lee. He's fighting for the South but he seems like he's a good guy to me. General Robert E. Lee had originally been recruited by President Abraham Lincoln to head up the Union Army. While Lee was staunchly opposed to slavery, so here he is, a Southerner, opposed to slavery, he decided to stay the course of his beloved state of Virginia instead. It's hard to understand, but in those days, loyalty to one's state always superseded loyalty to one's country and maybe even to moral beliefs. 
At the closing of the Civil War, Robert E. Lee surrendered to Ulysses S. Grant at the Appomattox Courthouse in Virginia. Within weeks of the surrender, the surrender was made known to other major armies battling in the war between the states. And at the end of the most trying time in America, American history came to a close. A few weeks later, at a church service at a small Methodist church in Arlington, Arlington, Virginia, the congregation held a communion service. Blacks were allowed to attend church, but were forced to sit in the back and to never approach the altar for prayer. It was common for parishioners to go to the altar to pray before communion to confess all sins. On this particular Sunday, after the worship service and before the communion, a few minutes of silence were observed for prayer. Almost immediately, uh, an old black man got from his pew, approached the altar, and knelt down to pray. The congregation and the minister were taken aback as an awkward silence fell on the people. This had never been done before and certainly was not necessarily seen as proper. At that moment, an older, whiter gentleman with flowing white hair and a commanding presence stood. He confidently walked to the altar. He knelt next to the black man, put his arm around him, and began praying. The older, whiter, white gentleman with the flowing white hair was General Robert E. Lee. Pretty cool, huh? I think he, se- he seems like a cool guy to me. And so we have the end, and so you see it. The, uh, the biggest, uh, the general of the north, so, so, uh, the general of the south surrenders to the general of the north, and that news spreads, and the south realizes that the Confederacy is all but broken. And so all the other armies then surrender in the, in the battles that they are, um, they are fighting. And so we have the end of the Civil War in 1865. And so, but think about it for just a second. After the battle stop, is everything just back to normal? Everything is hunky-dory. Think about it. Isn't there a lot of problems that have to be um, dealt with? Think about all the problems. Are you thinking with me? Do you think about all the problems that the North and the South have to go through to be reconciled back to each other? It's a lot of stuff. Why don't you take a second and make a list of some of those problems that you can think of with your little buddies? Sunday school isn't meant to just me be me talking at you, but, but, to, but to converse. Some of you like to learn that way. And so you get a little break from me talking at you, and you get to talk with your buddies about possible reasons, I mean possible problems that have to be overcome at the end of the Civil War. You get it? All right, go. Split families, yes. Extended families over, especially on the bordering states. Some families went to the north. Some families went to the south. What else do we got? I have three really big things, and so that's where I'm going to be going, but what else do you guys got? Yeah. Yes. That is true. Six percent during the Civil War, just the 61 62, 63, 64, 65, those five years, 6% of men living in the United States died. That's a pretty big, that's pretty, yeah, it's a lot of men. And so the work, all the, all the, the lonely ladies, oh, that, that'd be horrible. Um, what else? Maybe one more, and then I'll give my top three. Yes, Mr. Hunter. Yes, the South's dependence on slavery. That's one of my big things. Number one, there's no longer 
No more slavery. They were dependent, the South was dependent on slavery for, to, to survive as the South. And so there's no more slavery. Two, there's no more Confederate states. No more The, the, uh, the states that seceded from the Union got together, pulled together. There was, there was briefly a president of the Confederate states. And when the, when the Civil War ended, there was no more Confederate confederacy of these united Confederate states. There was just states that had seceded, and they were kind of each on their own. And finally, number three, what do you do with, the, uh, with all the Confederate soldiers, the ex-Confederate soldiers? Confed... Whoops, there's a G in there. Dang it, that says soldiers. What do you do with the Confederate soldiers? Do you put them in war camps? What do you do with all these people that just fought against the federal government? And so those are the three big issues that I can see um, that are probably of the biggest. Also, besides that, you know what year President Abraham Lincoln was killed? 1865, the same year that the Civil War ended. And so here we are, a nation trying to put itself back together, and our, our president is assassinated. President Andrew Jackson takes over. Do you know him? I mean, yes, you're right. <laughs> careful, careful. Excuse me. Uh, it takes over, and, um, and he wants the more conservative approach. He wants, there's some radical Republicans, as they're called, that, wants, that want to give the blacks the, the vote, but, do, but say that the ex-Confederate soldiers shouldn't be able to vote because they fought against the federal government. And so the long-time result of the Civil War ending is three admin, admin-ments, admin <laughs> Come on now, help me out. Uh, to the Constitution. Um, the 13th, 14th, and 15th. The 13th Amendment ended slavery. The 14th extended to, uh, to blacks mainly, uh, regardless of race, you have citizenship. And the 15th am- Amendment, how can I say that? That's so dumb. The 15th abolished racial restrictions on voting. So do you see it? Those are the long time, uh, the lasting results of the Civil War, those three uh, amendments to the Constitution. And so, um, but you realize that... I mean, you realize that those, those, those laws were put in place in the 1800s, but it really took about 100 years. You know Martin Luther King Jr., 1960s, the civil, the civil rights movement, that blacks in the South were often kept from voting, were discriminated against, um, were held as um, less than citizens until the 1960s, about 100 years after the Civil War, after these three laws were put into place. It's this idea of reconciliation and that the Civil War happened and the war stopped, but then reconciliation was needed. And so what I want to talk about with the rest of our time, we have about 20 minutes, is to talk about reconciliation. And do you remember if you you were there on Friday? Wave at me if you were there on Friday at the mill. Oh, almost all of you. That's so nice to see you guys waving at me. Um, If you were there, one of the questions that Glenn and Aaron answered. By the way, didn't, didn't you think that Glenn did an amazing job? Aaron did a great job, but he's used to answering the questions. I just thought Glenn was amazing. 
I was like, man, that's good. And did you know that um, Aaron had looked at the questions beforehand, but he didn't tell Glenn anything. Glenn had no no clue what questions were going to be answered. And so isn't that impressive? Wow, I wish I could do that. It would be amazing. Just answer questions. <laughs> and so that one of the, I say all that to say that one of the questions that they answered was about reconciliation. If you're awake, if you were paying attention, the question was something about what do you do if someone hurts you? Do you have to forgive them? And then they talked about reconciliation. And someone, um, a lady, Leanne, Dr. Leanne Coulter, came to a New Life Church staff meeting about two weeks ago on a Wednesday, and she spoke to us about reconciliation and really rattled our thinking about reconciliation. And so is it okay if I rattle your thinking a little bit about reconciliation? I hope so. And, and you might, you might want to, your instant reaction might be the same as me uh, listening to her is you kind of want to disagree. And you're like, no, that's not the way we've always heard it. Um, let, let me think about that. And so you might have to, this might be a lesson that you have to think about a little bit after, after we're done today. And I'm going to write on the board. So I'm going to move this chair and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to start writing um, stuff. I'm going to write, uh, and if you're taking notes, this would be a sweet thing to write down. Also, by the way, we're about to get, I'm about to give you, I think, a total of like 10 scripture verses. And if you're taking notes, you're probably going write, to write those down because after this, you're going to want to think about it and you might want to... Okay. <laughs> I don't have a blue, though. All right. I'm going to write really big. Oh, wait. I almost thought that was permanent. That would have been really bad. Okay, there's an A. That wasn't that much lower. And there's a B. Okay. See it? A and the B. These are going to be two people. And, um, man, is this permanent? It's just not coming off. Embarrassing. Um, there's an A. There's a B. B steals 100 bucks from A. So now A is minus 100 bucks. And we're talking about money because Jesus often in his parables talked about money. It's something that we could think about. It's something that we know that there's a debt of $100 because you stole $100. If I walk up to you and slap you, what, what, I mean, that's just a weird, what do you do? Do you give me back a slap? Do you, I don't know. It's just weird. So we're using this. Actually, you, you, you turn your other cheek. Um, bad example. But um, we're talking about money because um, it's easy to talk about. It's easy to quantify. And so if B, somebody uh, with B steals $100 from A, what has to happen? If both are Christians and A goes to B and says, bro, you stole my 100 bucks," and, and B says, yeah, I did, doesn't, doesn't B have to repay the hundred dollars back yes i think that's the right thing to do but in the old testament it goes a little further than just paying the hundred dollars back exodus 22 1 and I'll, I'll give you a second if you want to turn to each one of these but i think they will are we going to have it on the board no the screen's died that's sad okay um exodus 22 1 then you might want to turn there it says and it's about ox and sheep and there's lots of rules in the old testament about civil law, and if someone steals something or someone does something, then you have to do this and that. And it says this, if a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it 
or sells it. And you realize that back in those days, it would be like stealing a car or uh, an iPod. Um, If a man steals a car or an iPod and slaughters it or sells it, he must pay back five head of cattle for the ox and four for the sheep. Do you see it? So if B steals from A, he doesn't just have to give the, the, the cow back, but it says that restitution has to take place to, to, for that relationship to be redeemed, for, that to be, for the situation to be reconciled before God. What you have to do, because you stole, and you shouldn't have stole in the first place, is you have to play, for the cow you have to pay back five cows, and for the sheep you have to pay back four sheep. I don't know why it's different for the different animals. But who knows? You know, God knows. Um, and so one, four cars for the, for, the, for the car and five iPods for the iPod is how I see it. Oh, maybe not. Maybe it's the other way around. Anyways, the main point is that if you do something bad to another person, you owe them back plus on top of that because you stole, because you did something wrong to them. Do you see that? That restitution has to be paid back, that the amount and the restitution, some amount above that, has to be paid back. There's other examples in the Old Testament that says you have to pay back 15% or you have to pay back um, 150%. There's other examples for different situations of paying back plus a little more. And so if you are the, the, the person, the bee, if you are the, the violator, the person that has done wrong, you must um, pay back the person that you stole from. And so what if you, instead of repenting to A, let's say, um, you feel convicted about this situation. Is it just okay to go to God and say, God, would you forgive me for stealing money from so-and-so? Um, I receive your forgiveness and then pretend like nothing happened. I don't think that that's what God calls us to do. I think God calls us to first make restitution with the person and then go to God in prayer. Turn to this one. I really want you to turn here because it's, it's a good one. Matthew five twenty-three, and then we're going to read 24. This is Jesus talking. Matthew 5:23. By the way, if you're listening to someone talk like myself and um, someone says turn to this passage, you know how you can remember? Cuz some of you are like, what did he say? What passage did he just say? Here's what you do. You memorize the numbers and then you don't think about the book cuz the book of the Bible will just come to you instantly. I just gave you something that you're going to use for the rest of your life. So I said Matthew 5.23. You just keep remembering 5.23, 5.23, 5.23. And you'll automatically remember that I said Matthew. It's genius, I know. You're going to thank me later. You're going to be like, man, remember when you told us that? I've been using that for years. Matthew 5.23. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar. So this is kind of an Old Testament way of uh, if you're offering your gift at the altar. If you, if you made some sins... What you do is you bring, in the Old Testament it's bloody, it's different than it is now, but you'd bring an animal and the animal's blood would account for your sins. It's the Old Testament way of doing things. If you're offering, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you because you stole $100 for him, from him, um, leave your gift there in front of the altar. Go and be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Do you see it? So to be... Uh, to be reconciled with God, we need to make right this situation. If you're B, if you're the violator, if you've done something wrong, I don't think we're just called to say, God, would you forgive me from that, from whatever sin it is that I violated someone else, 
and just and just let it go and um, let me be redeemed to you. And you never have to make this horizontal. Now I'll put it in a different color. I'll put it in black. This horizontal. Um, you never have to make this thing right. This horizontal. I think God calls us to make this right and then go to him. And you realize that we're not talking about salvation here. You can be saved uh, from your sins, be a Christian, be born again by going to God and saying, I'm sorry. But I think to live out our faith, we need to continue walking and go and make some of these restitutions. These um, pay, pay the person back that you stole from, for instance. I remember when I was um, in high school, I had be, just become a Christian in 10th grade, and uh, we were on the spring break trip. I became a Christian in uh, the fall, and we were on the spring break trip, which was just amazing. I mean, imagine it. You're a high schooler. There's like 60 of you. Uh, I guess I think there was two buses, so maybe there's like 100 of us on these two buses. And I, by the way, I lived in Germany in high school because my dad was in the Air Force. I was an American. All my friends were Americans. The school was an American school. I didn't have to learn German. Um, so we all got on this bus, and the, the spring break trip was in Spain, like southern Spain, on these sweet islands. And so can you imagine it, being a high schooler and going down there, and then all the other American schools all over Europe, um, all the Christian groups would go down to Spain for this Christian retreat where we'd hear messages every night. I mean, if, you, if, you, if you've been around New Life long enough, you know that TAG does a summer camp and a winter camp. I mean, imagine a whole week like that. It was just so sweet. Can you imagine it? At the time, it was the best time of my life. I've had other good times since then, but at the time, it was just so amazing, so sweet. And on the way back from this trip, I was talking to a friend that gave his life to Christ. And by the way, there was just tons. Can you imagine a week-long, intense group of people following hard after God, listening to the message, and lots of kids in high school would just go on the trip just because, what, to Spain for a week? Oh, yeah, dibs. They would just go, and they had no, you know, they didn't have any faith. I mean, they were honest about it, and they were like, yeah, I'm just going to go. It's sweet. And so I was talking to this guy on the way back that had become a Christian. And he was sitting down and he was making a list of all these people that he needed to uh, apologize to. Teachers, friends, his parents, um, ex-girlfriends, so on and so forth. He was just writing this list of, I need, to, I, need to make, I need to go apologize to these people. Now that I'm a Christian, I feel convicted to do this. And dumb me, four-month-old Christian, I turned to him and said, that's not necessary, man. Christ has forgiven all your sins. You, you're, you're totally good. You know, your, your sins have been wiped clean. You don't need to bring up that dirt in those people's lives and remind them of your sin. You don't need to do that. And he said, yeah, thanks, man. You're right. That's dumb. Don't you think it was dumb? I, sh- I wish I could have gone back and said, what you're doing is something from God. God is convicting you to, to find forgiveness to these people that you've hurt. You've become a Christian. And what better way... What better testimony to call up some people, to call up old teachers and friends and say, I did this to you and I, I feel sorry. I'm a, I'm a Christian. I'm a believer now. And would you please forgive me for these sins because um, I'm a Christian now and, and my life's different. Wouldn't that be sweet? Can you imagine being the person receiving a phone call and you're like, yeah, you picked on me in fifth grade. I remember that. That's why, I'm, <laughs> that's why I have so many problems now. <laughs> Thanks for apologizing. And so um, that's if you are on the 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 b side of things if you're on the violators side of things i believe god calls us to make restitutions with the person the people that you've hurt and harmed um and to make yourself right with god okay you see all that what if you are the victim what if you're over here 
And I think the church does a really good job of ministering to the violator. We do a lot of prison ministries, don't we? Yeah, we do. As churches, I think we're all about saving the sinner and saving the violator. But I think the church can probably do a better job with helping the A, the, the person that comes to you and says, man, someone just stole 100 bucks from me. What you might say to them is, oh, just forgive it. You know, let it go. You're cool. You're like, man, they stole 100 bucks from me. Or they stole more. Or they did something else to me. And I'm really hurt. And then sometimes what the church says is, oh, just, you know, just ask, ask God to forgive the situation. Ask God to forgive them. You need to not harbor any um, hurt towards them. And just, just go to God. And here, so here's this situation. A is the violated. Just go to God and you'll be fine. You don't really have to deal with um, the person that violated you. And so here's some things that you can do that we should do. And this is the part that might change our thinking a little bit. Um, are you ready to be rattled just a little bit, to think about things maybe a little different? Um, if you have been violated, um, I'm just going to say this, and it's going to sound a little harsh, but I'm, I'm going to spend the rest of the time explaining it. If B, if someone steals the $100 from you, and, and um, what are you called? Maybe I'll say this first. What are you called to do as the person that's been violated? Are you called just to forget about it and just hide and bury that hurt and just say, oh, I just forgive, you know, just walk all over me. Um, just forgive. Uh, that's all I'm supposed to do. I don't think that's what you're called to do. Turn to Matthew 18. This is going to seem... Um, I think this is the right thing to do. If you have been violated in some way, and I'm using the money thing, but I think it transcends the money thing. Matthew 18, specifically verse 15. You got it? Are you using my secret trick? Don't tell anybody about that. Um, Matthew 18:15. If your brother sins against you, okay, so you've been violated, you are A, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. So what are you supposed to do? Are you supposed, If someone really hurts you, and... And by the way, if someone just kind of hurts you, says some mean things to you, um, maybe it is the right place for you to go say, hey, you know when you said that, you really hurt me. Or maybe it's you don't want to. There's another principle that says don't use a hammer to swat a fly because you'll make a lot more damage than just killing the fly. Maybe there are some times when you just let it go. But there, but I'm talking about some pretty serious offenses. I mean, if someone stole 100 bucks, turn to your neighbor and say, that's a lot of money. If I had a hundred bucks right now, can you imagine what I would be doing? I wouldn't be here. <laughs> Just kidding. I would be here. <laughs> That's so bad. Okay, uh, Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, show him his fault. Just between the two of you. And I think that's an important point. If someone sins against you, you don't want to start gossiping about it and say, oh, guess what he did? He stole a hundred bucks from me. Isn't he a bad person? And get all these people to agree with you and say, oh, yeah, he's such a bad person stole a hundred bucks from you and you're supposed to go to him, go to that person just between the two of you if he listens to you you have won over your brother if he listens to you he'll repent and say oh yeah i stole a hundred bucks here's a hundred bucks back here's here's i'm just so sorry about that but if he is not willing to listen take along one or two others so that the so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two witnesses if he refuses to listen to them tell it to the church if he refuses even to listen to the church Treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Do you see it? If, if, you, if someone has really hurt you, go to them and say, hey, don't just ignore it. 
go to them and say, hey, you really hurt me. You know, that, the hundred bucks that you stole from me was a big deal. What, what do you have to say for yourself? And they'll say, and they may say, well, will you forgive me? I, I needed it. I, I did wrong. Or the, if they say, the heck with you. I don't care. I'm not asking for your forgiveness. Then what are you supposed to do? Bring some other people along with you. Have them have a little meeting, I guess, or whatever, and say, you know, bring some church leaders or whatever um, you need to do and confront the person about it. And if they're still unwilling, it says treat them as a pagan or as a tax collector. Sounds a little harsh? Maybe so. I'm going to say, um, say that you're not called. What does it mean to treat someone as a tax collector or as, or as a pagan? Do you, do, you, do you take out your vengeance on them? Do you take out revenge on them? No, I don't think so. Romans 12:19. if you want to write that down, I'm just going to read it. Romans 12:19 says, Never take out your own uh, revenge, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And so you're to treat them as, you're not, but being violated does not give you the right to take revenge out on someone else. It, it doesn't give you the right to harbor um, hatred towards them. It doesn't give you the right to do anything but to love them. Because Jesus said in Matthew 5:43, you've heard it said, love the neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, this is Jesus talking, love your enemies, pray for those who have persecuted you. Do you hear it? Do you see it? Pray for those that persecute you. Love your enemies. Treat them um, with love. Treat them as, don't treat them as a brother in Christ because they've done this horrible thing to you, that's, that's okay to, to break a fellowship with them. If you have, asked to talk to them about it. And if you've brought someone with you, and you brought the, the church leaders, and you brought the whole church with you, is what the example says. Give them three strikes, and then make that line and say, this fellowship is broken. Because what I think the church does too often to the person that's been violated is we just say, oh, you've been hurt? Oh, don't cry about it. Just forgive. You know, go to God and say, oh, yeah, I find uh, God, ask forgiveness from God. Or just forgive that person in the sight of God. Don't worry about this. Just break that immediately and just go straight to God and say, oh, God, would you just forgive that person for stealing the $100 from me? Um, just let our lives just go on separately. If we see each other in the hall, just ignore them. But just, do you hear that often? Do you hear, if, if someone's been hurt, just say, oh, well, just don't cry about it. Just go to God and get peace and get forgiveness. And so what I think we need to do if we've been violated or if we're talking to someone that's been violated is, is to say, you need to, you need to make this right. You need to provide B with an opportunity to apologize, to repent. If he doesn't, then you can create this line of, of um, broken fellowship, but, but not until you give them a chance to repent. Do you see it? I think that's the Christian way that we've been called to forgive. And forgiveness means to pardon sin. And so always be ready with open arms to, to, to receive their forgiveness. In no way, once does Jesus allow uh, an incidence where B has done something to A, and B comes to A and says, I'm sorry. There's no reason in which A can say, yeah, I don't forgive you. Go away from me. You've sin your sin is too great. If B truly repents to A, the Christian response is, you have to allow for repentance. You have to pardon their sin. Do you see it? All right, I want to close with a story. All right, this is a, it's a good story. I'll just read it. Jenny grew up on the west side of Clithicoth, Iowa. I mean, Ohio. 
In her early teenage years, she fell into a pattern of running long battles with her parents. They didn't react too well when she came home with the nose ring. They were furious that she stayed out all, stayed out all night with not so much as a phone call to tell her parents where she was. Her friends weren't exactly her parents' first choice. One night, Jenny and her folks had a huge fight. I hate you, she screams at her father as she slams the door to her bedroom. That night, she acted on a plan that she had been forming for some time. Once everyone had gone to sleep, she got dressed, packed bags, went to the kitchen. Opening the kitchen drawer, she rifles through her parents' wallets. She takes the credit cards, the cash, and the bank book. She hops on the bus and heads to Columbus. When she gets there, she waits at the doorstep of the Bank One building so that she could be the first to the door. She forges her mother's signature and withdraws $12,500 that her parents had for her in a college fund. She figures it's hers anyways. She grabs a cab to the airport and uses her dad's credit card to buy a ticket to L.A. She figures the last place her parents will look for her is on the streets of the Sunset Strip in L.A. She, she arrives in L.A., and pretty soon she's enjoying the high life. A new group of friends, plenty of booze, late nights, sleeping all day, no school, no parents hassling her about the nose ring, let all alone to her experiments with sex and with drugs. It doesn't take long until the 12500 is gone and the credit cards have been canceled. Back home, her parents are frantic. Mom has started um, packing shelves at night to pay off the credit and the debit cards, and the college fund is wiped out. The police are notified, and the streets are searched. Her parents don't know what's happened. They fear the worst. Meanwhile, down on the streets of Sunset Strip, things aren't going too well. Ginny is soon addicted to heroin, and the money she stole hasn't gone too far. She moves in with a group of older women, and at the suggestion of another girl, she becomes a prostitute. One day, she's walking the streets and sees a poster on a telephone pole. It says, have you seen this girl? Below the heading is a photo of her, at least what it used to be, uh, of what her, she used to look like. The poster has got her parents' phone number on it and asks anyone with information to call. Ginny rips down the poster, folds it, and puts it into her pocket. The months pass, then the years. Ginny's been careless one too many times. At first, she writes off her sickness as just a bout of the flu, but the illness persists. She goes into the free clinic to discover that she's contracted hepatitis C and HIV. Now her superiors won't even let her be a prostitute anymore. She sits lonely, tired, and hungry, homeless. She looks at the posters she's rescued from that tele telegraph pole and saved for the, for the last few years. She thinks back to her previous life, a typical schoolgirl in rural Ohio family. God, why did I leave? She, she now says to herself, even the family cat lives better than I do. She's sobbing now. She knows that more than anything, she wants to go home. Three straight phone calls, three connections with the answering machine. She hangs up without leaving a message on the first two. But the third time she says, Mom, Dad, it's me. I'm wondering about maybe coming home. I'll pay you rent I, just until I can get my feet back on the ground. I'm catching a bus to Columbus. I'll be downtown at the station about midnight tomorrow. If you're not there, well, I guess I'll just catch another bus to New York. The next day on the train, Jenny thinks about the call. It's been 10 years, and they haven't heard a word from her in all that time. How are they going to react when they discover that she's a junkie and with AIDS? If they, don't show up, what, if they do show up, what on earth am I going to say? The train pulls into the Greyhound station at 10 minutes past midnight. 
She hears the hiss of the brakes and the train comes to a stop. Her heart starts pounding. This is it. Oh, well, get ready for nothing. Jenny steps out of the train, not knowing what to expect. She looks to her right and sees an empty platform. But before she can look back, she hears someone calling her name. Her head whips around, and there's her mom and dad, her aunts, her uncles, cousins, and grandmother. They're holding a banner that says, Welcome Home, and everyone's wearing goofy party hats, throwing streamers, party poppers. And there's her mom and dad running towards her, tears screaming, streaming down her face, arms held wide. Wide, Ginny can't move. Her parents grab her with such a force that almost knocks her over. Dad, I'm sorry, is what she says. Let's pray. God, we, we thank you for redemption. We thank you for reconciliation, God. God, the story of the prodigal son or the prodigal daughter in this, in this case is about us coming to you. God, we want to be more like the parents in this situation that are just open arms, ready to receive forgiveness if we've been violated and hurt. And God, if we are the violator, God, would you help us to go to the person that, we've, that we have hurt and say, we're sorry, would you, would you forgive us? Because God, that's what you're calling us to do. And so Jesus, we just thank you. We thank you that your word remains true. We thank you that your parables and your stories still touch us today, God. And so we worship you, we praise you, and we leave here rejoicing. And everybody said, Amen. All right, everybody. Peace out.